Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 25. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year, year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of its own accord, of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy, um, thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. Uh, the Sabbath, the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you and for, and for uh, thee and thy servants, your major hired servants, the strangers that sojourneth with thee, for cattle, for beasts that are in the land, shall all the increase thereof be meat or be food. Verse 8. You shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. The space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years, forty-nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all the land. Imagine the shofar just blowing. You shall hallow the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land unto the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession. You shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that 50th year be unto you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vines undressed. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy unto you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of the jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. He reiterates it again. And you, and if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, if you sell your, your parcel of ground, by assault of thy neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. Don't take advantage. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor according to the number of years of the fruit he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of years, thou shalt increase the price thereof. According to the fewness of years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. That's called prorating. <laughs> For according to the number of years of the fruit doth he sell unto thee. Verse 17. You shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am the Lord your God. Again, God, we just pray over the section of scripture that we have just read, and we ask that you would anoint it to our ears, to our hearts. Again, Lord, as we prayed earlier, that you would cover this place with your hand. That you would put the host of angels around about this place. That you would guard us from any attacks. Again, 
that just bur- that scripture burns on my heart. Did not our hearts burn within us? Please, Holy Spirit, if there's anyone here today, for whatever reason, not able to receive from you, speak your word of deliverance to them. Allow them to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, again, you know, in chapter 23, we were dealing with special days. We were talking about the feast days, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover. These were particular days. We dealt with the, the, the law of the Sabbath. Thou shalt work six days, and then the seventh day is a Sabbath. You don't do anything. It's a total day of rest. They wouldn't even turn on a light switch and made a funny story the last time we were in that section in an elevator in Israel one time, not knowing the difference between a, a sabbatical elevator and a heathen elevator. So I go into the sabbatical where all the buttons are lit because they're not allowed to push a button. The Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox, would allow the elevator to go up one floor at a time. If you're on the 20th floor, that, <laughs> there's your day. And it stopped. And Bill Pfeiffer and I were in that elevator. We didn't know. We're over there trying to push the buttons, trying to correct the thing. And we're in an elevator full of these ascetic Jews. And they're looking at us like we were just heathens, pagans, you know. Um, but now, now we do, we still, we're still dealing with the law of the Sabbath, but not so much a, a, a sabbatical day. But now he's talking about a sabbatical year. Now, uh, I'm going to paraphrase as we go through these 17 verses, uh, highlight a few things. But the number one thing that I want you to see at the beginning of this chapter is the way God reiterates, repeats himself over and over. When he comes into a new section dealing with the Israelites, he comes out and he says, Now tell the nation, follow these instructions. You know, it's almost like you're telling that, that your children, look, here's how you do this. Here's how to protect yourself when you're going, you know, to school. This is what you do. And you tell them that because you want them to respect you. You're, you're, you're the parent. You want a love relationship with that child. And it's the same way with God. He wants that respect, that fear, that adoration. He wants that reverence. But he also wants to view him as a loving father at the same time. And so he lowers himself to this point where he goes, Look, not only do I want you to take a day off a week, but I also want you to give the land a break. It's just to take one year off. You're not to touch it. You know, again, he would give them permission to if you're walking through it and something drops off that seventh year, if it drops off and it's on the ground, you, it's okay to pick it up, but you're not to harvest it. You're not to bring in your hired servants and pull everything. You're to leave everything go, allow the weeds to grow, allow all the fruits just to drop in the ground, rot on the ground. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. Now, the Sabbatarians, the people who want to hold to all the sabbatical laws, well, they miss a few pieces of this. They miss where it tells them, work six days, take one day off. They don't mind taking five days off and, I mean, work five days and taking two. But the law specifically says, no, you're to work. That's part of the law. 
You work six days, you get one day off where you don't do anything. The same thing with here. Even today, those who try to practice the sabbatical year, the way they get around this law is they'll say, well, we're not really using it. They rent the land out that seventh year. And they usually, usually rent it out to an Arab farmer. But they're not telling it. But that wasn't the point. Listen, all the laws were given in order to bless man. Man wasn't given to the law where we could be oppressed by him. The law was given to us, number one, to show us we couldn't keep it. It was going to be a tutor. It, tutor. it was going to teach us how we couldn't keep it and we needed Christ. But then, but it was also for our benefit. Man, imagine if we followed a sabbatical day. Imagine if. How many of you guys are just going to go home and nap the rest of the day today? That's what I thought. Now, I didn't say how many of you want to. <laughs> but that was their gig. You didn't do a thing. In fact, I have a buddy that lives in Jerusalem. His wife will pre-cook everything Friday. So she doesn't, she doesn't turn the stove on, on a Sabbath. And so people try to get around the law. They try to skirt around the law because they're in bondage by the law. But the law was to be a blessing. Imagine if we really followed that sabbatical day where we just took a time. All we're going to do is hang out together with each other. We're just going to, we're not even going to do anything. Now maybe we'll flip a couple burgers. We'll let Curtis sit out there and we'll just. Uh... Well, it's the same way with the land. You know, back in those days, there wasn't fertilizer. You know, there wasn't any way to keep the nutrients. And you could, you know, how we have a guy that comes around here every three months, I think. And he does his thing with the grass and all. Well, there was none of that. The best thing for them to allow that land to produce more crop, healthier crop, was to let everything rot on top and let the weeds just grow. And then on that first year of that seven-year seven period... You, then you till it all over, you let it, and all the nutrients that were sucked up from the weeds now get on top of the soil, and you pr- actually produce a healthier crop. It was to benefit them, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind and strength. It wasn't to be a law where it would oppress us. It would be a, a, a law that challenges that we can love God that way. It was to be a blessing. They were to be good stewards of the land. They weren't to deplete it. And it would be the one year, the one year where everyone would be on equal footing. It wouldn't matter if you were the wealthy landowner or you were the poorest of poor. On that particular day or year, man, you were all on the same playing field, man, that you were not allowed to till that ground no matter who you were. And you look at this, you see that number seven coming up over and over and over. And I'm not in the, really big in that whole numbers game, finding the, out the different numbers, but I really believe there's some truth, validity to it. And if you're that kind of student that likes to do that sort of thing, the number seven is all through the Bible. It goes all the way back to Genesis where we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh, seventh day, he does what? He rests. We've got Jacob who worked for his uncle Laban for seven years. He got duped, but he, then he had to work another seven years in order to get the, the love of his life. But the se- seven is there. 
You have Pharaoh. He had a, a dream. Seven fat oxen and then seven skinny oxen. But again, specifically, it mentions seven. Seven golden lampstands with seven lights mentioned in Zechariah. We have in Revelations 12, 17, uh, 12 and 17, we have the heads of the beast with seven horns. Seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls mentioned in the book of Revelation. The number seven means completion. Number eight is new beginning. Nothing past seven. You hit eight, it's all new beginnings. Number six is is the number of man. Six, 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 the mark of the beast, the number of man. There's seven colors in a patlet. Seven colors that make up a rainbow. There's seven days in a week. There's seven notes to a scale. It's not just a biblical truth. It's all around us. We even have seven days in our week. Then he mentions, not only are you to take that seventh year and make it hollow, it belongs to him Then he mentions that there's another sabbatical law, and it's called the year of Jubilee. And that's where they are to wait 49 years. But that 50th year was to be recognized as that day where we could proclaim liberty and freedom. You would hear the shofar blasting and horns blowing all over the place. But notice this, though, guys. They weren't to do this. They were not to do this until they entered into the land. They were on the tarmac. Holding pattern. Ever been in one of those? You ever fly much? Yeah, we're in a holding pattern right now, and an hour later goes by. Sorry, folks. You're wondering, how much fuel does this thing carry, man? They, could, they were not allowed to declare this year of jubilee until they got into the land. And in a way, guys, we have our jubilee coming We really do. A horn will sound. Stay with me, folks. And then we will be ushered out of our wilderness and into a time period where we will be singing the songs of the redeemed. The ram's horn, by the way, the shofar, is actually, well, the word jubilee is translated into Hebrew, as trumpets. It comes from the root word Jubal, and Jubal was the father of all fathers when it came to the harp and the, the flute. You can read that in Genesis chapter 4. And dealing with this 50 years, there's a few things that they, they had to do, though. Um, all the slaves, and this is the 50th year, right? You, you've done the 49, and you're still recognizing the sabbatical law every seven years. That seventh year was to be a, a, a rest for the land. But this, this year of Jubilee, you, all the slaves were to go free. Can you imagine the slave? I just, I just have one more year. And I'm, I'm out of here. All, all debt was canceled. It didn't matter how large the debt was, the year of Jubilee, it was canceled. That's why he said, I don't want you to abuse, you know, your brother. Don't take advantage of him. You know the, the year of Jubilee, the end of it's coming up, and you know you have to cancel his debt. So don't you abuse him, though. You follow my law. 
the land. Say you were in dire straits financially, you had a parcel of land, you were allowed to sell that for profit for profit. That guy who bought that land was also allowed to use that land, cultivate it as a farm, whatever. He was allowed to make money on it. So it was worth a lot to him if he had 30 years still left in that 50-year agreement. If he knew that, that it was coming to an end and there was only one year, he's not going to pay that much attention to that, that partial of ground. Why would he? It's like in Jeremiah chapter uh, 32, right? Jeremiah, check this out. He's in prison. He's prophesying doomsday for, for the nation. You're going into captivity for 70 years. And then God would tell him in this vision, yeah, they're going into captivity, but then they're coming back. Listen to me, folks. This is important. You're going to return to the land. So as Jeremiah is in his cell, God speaks to him. He goes, listen, your cousin's coming to you, and he's going to offer you a partial of ground. I want you to buy it. Now, the dumb thing would be to buy it when you know you're going into captivity. Why would you purchase land? Unless you had enough faith knowing that there's going to come a time period you're going to return. And that land is going to still be yours. Well... You know, there's a principle there, guys. It seems that in our minds and in our hearts, if we picture Jesus coming back, oh, like maybe today, the world really doesn't have that much value to us, does it? But if in our hearts we're thinking, oh, we're in the beginning of this jubilee, we're like at year 49, you know, you'll put so much attention, so much effort and drive in this partial of dirt, the earth, that you're just not going to pay that much attention to heavenly things. That's why Jesus said, it's an evil and it's an adulterous generation that saith he delays his coming. Well, guess what? Jesus isn't going to be delaying it. Um, Too soon, I think. I think he's coming back. Real soon. And that shofar, as it were, that horn is going to blast. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we that are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Agreed, guys? Don't put any value in this earth. This has nothing to offer you. Let's look for that year of jubilee. Amen, guys? They had a a problem, verses 18 through 24, and basically that that problem um, wasn't really a problem. It was, if if you want to live with my blessing, if you want to live in security, if you want this land to yield its crop, then again, he says, follow my decrees and Follow my instructions. The one thing he says in verse 17 that I think is so important, if I could just go back there for a minute, you shall not oppress one another. And here it is, but thou shalt fear the Lord uh, thy God. You shall fear fear thy God to fear him. Now we know that's not a phobia. He doesn't want us to be petrified of him. I think I'm going to close with that thought in a second. So bear with me. Um, 
But there was a problem. What happens if you sold that land and you were older and you knew that no way am I going to be able to even physically reach that year of Jubilee? I might die before that year is reverted back to me. And is that going to be a problem? Will the, uh, the man who bought that, will he now be the sole owner to it? No, no, stay with me, guys. He sells it because he's in debt. He's fearful that he's not going to be able to make that year of Jubilee to get that inheritance, that land back to his family. He's afraid he's going to die. Well, God addresses that here. He says to him, no problem. This is what happens. If you don't think you're going to be able to make it, or maybe you're, you've really ran into some bad luck, as it were, but you, you weren't able to raise up the money, enough money to purchase it back, and you can't wait to the year of Jubilee, then the, you, do you have a kinsman redeemer? What's a kinsman redeemer? Do you have anyone in your family that's able to buy the land in your stead? You know, can they buy it or stay in the family? And then when the year of Jubilee, if you're still a live guy, then it'll go back to you. But at least it stays in the family. And that's what God is trying to describe here. So it always stays in the family. That there's going to be a kinsman redeemer. If you read the book of Ruth, that's what it's all about. You remember the guy Boaz? He gets a look at Ruth. Woohoo! Falls in love with her. He, because he is a relative, he becomes her kinsman redeemer with Naomi. He gets, they, they keep the land. Now there's something very interesting. And that is in Revelations chapter 5. In Revelations chapter 5, and I was going to read it, time's not permitting me. Read it as a homework assignment. John the Beloved. Remember John the Beloved? One of the disciples. He's taken up into heaven. He has a revelation. Not revelations. It's not plural. One revelation. He has a revelation. He's there. He's looking at God on the throne. Now, I know you guys went to Revelation chapter 5. Look at me. You'll read that later. This is Harry's paraphrase. You can't buy this one. So he sees God on the throne. And John goes, whoa. No, he's... John looks on the, at the throne. And he notices that God, the creator of this earth, is holding something. John takes a closer look and he recognizes it to be a scroll. But not an, an, an ordinary scroll. It is the title deed to the earth. When a goel would purchase the property... There was three things that were handed to him. Two title deeds to him. One is sealed. Terms and conditions is the other one. That Goel would hold that until it was time to redeem that property. He would break open the seal and he would say to his cousin, Cuz, we still own the land. When Jeremiah came back into the land, he was able to open up the scroll. And he goes, guys, I know you've been in captivity for 70 years. But look at this. We still own the land. I was the... The Goel. So God's on the throne. John sees it. He sees God holding the title deed and it's sealed. He breaks down and cries. You would think, well, what's the big deal? Because John makes a statement and says, there was none found worthy on earth or on the earth, in heaven or under, that's worthy to undo the seals and to open the scroll. 
No one was worthy. In fact, the Greek says that John fell to the ground. And he's weeping. The word weep there means he went into a convulsion. Now, why would John react like that? Well, I'll tell you why. God had given the deed over to mankind back in the Garden of Eden. Here is the title, Adam and Eve. Till the ground, maintain it, it's yours. It belongs to me, but you are landowner right now. Well, they forfeited that. And they handed that right over to Satan. And when John in heaven saw that God was now holding the title deed, he knew unless there was a kinsman redeemer, unless a Goel would step forward and take the scroll, the earth would remain in Satan's custody. And he wept over it. As you and I weep, you look at the world today, and if it doesn't bring tears to your eyes, there's something drastically wrong with you. To see the drug addiction, to see the homes being torn apart, to see kids captivated in prison by gadgets. The world is so sin sick, it should break your heart. I can't wait to see this. So John's looking. An angel standing next to John there in chapter 5. He sees John on the ground convulsing. It tells us that the angel touched him. And as he's touching him, he's lifting him up to his feet. And he goes, nah, John, don't freak out. That's Harry's paraphrase. Look, behold, the lion of Judah. Well, John has seen some really crazy things in heaven. He lifts his eyes thinking he's going to see some kind of, some kind of lion or something. But John's response was this. It wasn't a lion. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Behold the lion, I'm sorry, behold the Lamb of God, as though he had been bruised and slain before the foundations of the earth. It kind of makes you wonder what Jesus looks like in heaven. Does he still bear the scars? If he raises his hand in heaven, will we see daylight through the holes? Not that there's daylight, but you know what I mean. He's a, he's a lamb, as though he had been slain before the foundations of the earth. That's what made him the Goel. That's what made him the kinsman redeemer. 32 and 34 was just Levitical laws as it came to land. But I want to go back to this whole thing. What, what qualified Jesus? There was three things that Goel had to possess, possess. Number one, he had to have the means. He had to have the money to buy the land. Number two, he had to be a family member. He had to be related. And number three, he had to, he had to have had the willingness to do it. Again, the money had to be related and a willingness to do that. Well, if you read through the gospel and even the the book of Revelation, you see that Jesus fulfills all that. As far as the money, Revelations chapter 5 says this. Um, they sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take this, the book, the seal, or the title deed. Um, he says, thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seal thereof. For thou wast slain, and you have redeemed us to God by thy blood. 
What was the means? What was the price? His blood. His blood purchased the land. His blood purchased the earth again. His blood purchased you. He bought you. You didn't come free. Some people think that this is just, you know, this was just a freak. God, I'll do you a favor. I'll give you my heart. Yeah, you can see God now. Yeah, wow, thanks. <laughs> a sinful creature. That nothing dwells good in you. No, he bought you. He loves you so much. He bought you. He purchased you. How could he do that? He was related to God. Well, how was he related to God? He was God, for goodness sakes. You can't get any more related. It tells us uh, in John 1, it says, The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was God. That's how he was related. That's how he could be our kinsman redeemer. Not only that, he was willing. There are those that will say that they murdered him. We murdered him. The Jews murdered him. The Romans murdered him. Well, if you look at it through the eyes of man, yeah, he certainly was murdered. From the very one that was saying, crucify him, crucify him, to the very one who took the final whack with the hammer to drive the spike. Yeah, they murdered him. But he did it willingly. He did it of his own accord. Now, I have done some things where I thought, okay, I'm just going to bite the bullet. I'm going to do this thing. It's the right thing to do. But to compare whatever I've done to what Jesus was so willing to do, it tells us that verse cha- or chapter 10 of John, therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. So he did have the means. It was through his blood. He was related. He was God himself. And he did it willingly because he loved us. That's why John, when he saw this lamb as though he had been slain before the foundation of the world, he then walked up, took that title deed. He opens it up. And guess what? All heaven starts to rejoice. It is a jubilee. In fact, oh, what a jubilee. It's something that you and I will experience. We will, we will see this. It's a revelation. It hasn't happened yet. It's on its way. And I think, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and very... How many of you that could sing that song with me? I'm not asking you to, but you could. Behold, he comes, and he comes quickly. If any man says he delays his com- coming, he's wicked, adulterous. If any man says, well, we'll leave it there. This is what I want to finish with, guys. And this is where you really want to try to stay with me. The one thing that I pointed out in in verse 17 was, it's to those that fear him. But what does fear look like? What does it mean to fear God? You know, I've preached this thing so many times, you know, it's almost second nature. But I realize we might get confused of what real godly fear is. The fear of Satan would be considered terror, dread, anxiety, horror, distress, fright, panic. That's the fear from Satan, always being alarmed. And I see even believers equate that to the fear of God. It's not. God hasn't instilled into you in your life a panic. 
No, what he's instilled into your life is a perfect love which casts out all fear. You're not, what are you alarmed about? Jesus could come back. Man, I'm saying, bring it on, baby. Let him come back for us. No, the fear of God is admiration. It's when one is esteemed and one is held in reverence. It's when one is venerated with worship and adoration and honor and respect. There's a love that causes worship and glorification and exaltation. There's a love that comes into your heart. And you're not just saying, hey, give me a high five, God. You're on your face and on your knees knowing that he's a father that loves you so much. But yet you fear him in adoration. You adore him for who he is. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is all that and above. And when you worship, that's who you're worshiping. You don't worship him because you dread him. You don't worship him because there's an alarm in your life. You worship him because who he is in your life. And you're looking for the day. You're not thinking 50 years and putting all your effort in this world. You're thinking of it could be today. And I want to live like he's coming back today in this world is meaningless. And I heard something last week. I, listened, I watched Wednesday night. And what the team was bringing out, basically in a nutshell, that when they went to Mexico and they saw what life was really like for them, everything that they thought was meaningful became meaningless. And that's exactly the way it is with you and I. If we think he could come back and get us today, you're not going to be all wrapped up in your new house or your 401s and your boats. And your... I'm not saying those things are wrong, but you're not going to be wrapped up around it. You know, I got a little sailboat someone gave me. And I don't know, maybe I should fix it, but if it gets turned over to the Antichrist, I'd like it to sink, you know. <laughs> Just kidding, Bill, if you're here. He's, he can have it all. How do you compare the life of this world to a new Jerusalem, a new city? Ah, this is fear, reverence, veneration of worship, adoration. It's exemplified in Abraham, Joseph, Obadiah, Nehemiah, Job. Even the Christians in the early church, it was something that they walked in. They walked in this, this reverence, this, this hollowness, if that's a word. They, they don't walk around like, you know, God's their best friend, their buddy, and they're going to go out and get a cappuccino with him. They walked around in this fear of God. They held him in reverence. It says... Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria. They were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord in Acts 9. Even in Acts chapter 10, when we deal with our buddy Cornelius, he was the one who feared God. And look what God did for Cornelius. I wonder what would take place in our lives. What could God do in our lives if we just had God in that proper place? Noah, I, I would love to go through all these heroes of mine. 
But Noah in the book of Hebrews, I'll just read this one cross-reference to you. In Hebrews 11, it says, and by faith knowing, or I'm sorry, and by faith Noah, being warned of God of the things that he hadn't seen yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark, saving his house, by the which he... He condemned the world and be an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. He was moved by what? He was moved by fear. Moved by adoration. Imagine being encouraged to build something you've never seen. He's ne- he never heard of the word rain. It never rained. There was no ocean. And God says, Noah. I want you to build me an ark. I always think of Bill Cosby when I do that. What's an ark? And the comedian keeps arguing back and forth. He's playing the character of Noah. Finally, God just says to Noah, how long can you tread water? Build the ark. But he was moved because of his relationship with God. Judgment's coming, guys. This world will be judged. Or as Billy Graham once put it, if he doesn't, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah of an apology. It will be judged. We are in that final year of the Jubilee. But what dictates and governs our faith is the fear of God. Let me tell you what it's this well what it's described like. I don't have enough time to go through it. It's described as this. It's a hatred of evil. When one has this fear, Proverbs 8.13, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, and the verse goes on. It's described as wisdom. Behold the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, or Job 28. Behold the fear of the Lord, um, that is wisdom, depart from evil's understanding. It's a treasure. This kind of fear, reverence, is a treasure. If you're with me today, and you, you're in, in that, then you should embrace that kind of a relationship because God says it's a treasure. Most of Christendom doesn't today. The, the, maybe the, oh, I respect, I'll do my thing in the church and I'll try to serve where I can. I'm trying to be a good person. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is to be experienced. And if you have that, it's a treasure, according to Proverbs 15. Uh, Proverbs 14 says that this fear is a fountain of life. This is what I've learned. The more that I, I come underneath that umbrella of his love and respect and fear and, ha- and being hallowed, I find that life flows out of me, not death. Where the fear of Satan, the fear of man brings death. The fear of God just brings life and it brings it abundantly. I feel like I'm alive more when I fear God than I do when I'm just taking everything for granted. I don't take this church for granted. It could be taken like that. I could be dead tomorrow. I have one seizure. I'm done. I get my last day of the Jubilee. You never know. You don't take it for granted. When you have this kind of fear, it, it, there's something within you. It sanctifies you. And it sets you apart. You see, yeah, it's a hatred of evil, but it does more than that. Uh, you have such a distaste for, for this world that you don't even want to be a part of it. I know I got to be in it, but I don't have to be a part of it. Does that make sense? 
Also, this fear is what cultivates a loving, a reverence, that kind of relationship with God. Yes, He is my Father. And yes, I can call Him Abba, Father. I get that, but He's given me the permission. I haven't just assumed it. Where I can now go into a more perfect sanctuary, whereby we can call Him Abba, Father. He says, I'll lower myself down to you so that you can actually consider me your Father. But don't picture me like your earthly Father. That's not who I am. And a lot of us can say amen to that. Some of you might have had a dad in your life that you feared, but he was still someone in your life that you could adore. That's the kind of relationship God wants. But I didn't have that. I just had one that I dread. He was terror. He was fear, abusive. So I feared him. I did not love him. Don't get me wrong, guys. Ecclesiastes 12 tells us it's not a suggestion. It's a command. It tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. I don't know what, how this, but it's an NIV, pardon me. I'll have to repent. But here is the conclusion of the matter, to fear God and to keep his commandments. It's not a suggestion. He's telling us to fear him. First Peter 2 says, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Guess what's next? Fear God. Verse 17, Leviticus 25. All right, now you got this, Israelites? Yeah. Sabbatical days? Got it. Work six, take one that. You're going to do that? Yeah, you're our father. We love you. We fear you. Now, seven years or six years you're going to work. Seventh year you're going to let the land rest. Got that. We love you. We fear you. We want your blessing upon us. We're going to do this. And that year of Jubilee, you're going to let 49 years go by in one year. You don't hold anything. It all goes back to the original fact. Yep, we got that. The only way that will work, and you'll do that and be obedient, is if you fear me. And it's the same way with the Christian. If we don't walk in fear, adoration, who he is in our lives, we will walk the course of this world and not heaven. Greg, make your way out, buddy. There was something else I dug up in my studies when it comes to the fear of God. You know, it's just not again, you know, you know, do this and you'll be blessed. It's like, that can be a little legalistic, if you know what I mean. But there are things that motivates me. You know, when, when I think of the holiness of God... And when Jesus said, be ye therefore holy as I am holy. All through the book of Leviticus, the first 10 chapters, how many times did we read? I want you to be holy for I am holy. I don't know about you, but I can't do that in the flesh. I can't do that as just this little, you know, Harry Presley, this little Christian guy that walks around and just claiming to be born. I I need the fear of God. That's what motivates me to his holiness. Another thing it motivates me towards is his greatness. When you have the fear of God within your heart, there's a thing in there you just say, there's nothing he can't do. He can do everything. And if he doesn't do it, it's for my good anyway. It just 
leads me to the greatness of God. Not only the greatness, but to his goodness. When the fear of God is in your life, you don't go around thinking, man, he wasn't that good today. Man, he was a real bummer today. Man, he just kills my joy. When you have the fear of God flowing through your life in, in reverence and adorate, you just, oh, it, it's true that all things work out for the good to them that love him and that are called. But if you're a legalist, you're not going to be able to embrace that. If you're just one of these mundane, kind of ordinary, plain people, you just have your fire insurance, you're not going to experience the goodness of God. You're not even going to experience the forgiveness of God. You might have the forgiveness of God, but you won't experience. That's why so many Christians today meander around this world just hoping they're saved. I thought you received the Lord. Well, I did back in Billy Graham. Yeah, well, what do you mean you hope? Well, I'm just, you know, I don't, I'm really, I don't have that assurance. Well, why give? Why don't you? Well, maybe what's lacking is just that fear of God. Find a place in your house. Get down on your knees if you can physically do it. Lay prostrate before the Lord. Walk in your room where there's no distraction. Put your hand up. You know, the lift our hands up to worship him wasn't a suggestion, by the way. Some people might call you fanatical. Well, I... They talk to me about motorcycles and boats. I'm a fanatical. No, I, I lift this up out of obedience to worship him, to adore him. Whether I feel like it, whether I don't feel like it, whether I had a bad day, whether the dogs got out and I had to chase them all out one morning, I'm still coming in expecting a forgiveness and the goodness, his wondrous works. All because... The fear of God motivates me to those things. (laughs) Do you know what you're going to say? Stand up. I can only imagine. I'll shoot him. He sings that one. I cannot sing that high. It's like in the back room I'm trying. Surrounded by your glory. (laughs) I see you guys dropping down a key when he hits that. I see. I know what you're doing. Listen, just as we're starting to calm down, and I'm calming down. There's six things that I had found also in Scripture. Why the fear of God is so important. Number one, it's necessary for worship. And I'll just give you the cross-reference and you can pick up the tape or CD, whatever they got. Psalms 5. It's necessary for the service of God. Psalms 2. It's necessary for avoiding sin. Exodus 20. It's necessary for righteous a righteous government. That's why we're not voting in righteousness, guys. I don't care who's in that big White House. If God is not leading the country, if there's not a fear of God in the country, it's not going to display righteousness. I'm sorry. Also, it's necessary for impartial administration of justice. There's no way we're going to have real justice without the fear of God. And finally, perfect holiness. To be holy as God is holy. I know it's a lifetime goal, achievement. But there should be a drive in all of our hearts to become more and more like him. Amen?
But without the fear of God, it's, it's impossible. And again, I just want to remind you so you're not going home. It's not terror. It's not dread. It's not anxieties. That's from Satan. It's admiration, esteem, reverence, veneration. It's love that's been shed abroad into our hearts. It's holding him in holiness. And, and you just sometimes you just, it's like God saying to Moses, you take off your sandals, pal. You are on sacred ground. Imagine people coming into this building every Sunday and in their hearts sensing, whoa, whoa, something is righteous here. Something's holy here. And no one has played a note. No one has said a, spoke a word. You just walked into his presence. Oh, I long for that. I long for that. Today, as Greg's leading us out, if you want prayer for anything in your life, if you want to experience that holiness, that fear, maybe you ha- you're, that's not you. You just have your fire insurance, and maybe you want just a little bit more than that. You want to make that offering of consecration. The prayer team will be up here. You come up, pray with them. I'm done. I promise. I'm, I'm done. There, it's closed. Greg's going to lead us out. Prayer team, make your way up. And if you want prayer, I want you to find a prayer team person down here. If I have any elders or staff here, if it gets too crowded, come up and help them. But come up and pray and come tonight. Come tonight. I would say, thus saith God, but I might get struck with something.